Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. The anti-aircraft guns started firing just after 3 a.m. Something had been spotted over Santa Monica, and according to one witness, the air over Los Angeles erupted like a volcano. It was February 1942, and Pearl Harbor had been bombed less than three months before. Now, it seemed World War II had come to the City of Angels. Air raid sirens sounded, and a full blackout descended. Over 1,400 anti-aircraft shells were fired. Five people died from heart attacks or crashes in the dark. But the Japanese bombs never fell. It was a false alarm. The anti-aircraft guns had been firing at an American weather balloon. The Battle of Los Angeles, as it became known, never held any real threat. Now, though, with living costs rising and the population decreasing, there's a different sort of phantom floating over America's dream factory. I'm John Prideaux, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, Los Angeles is shrinking. Is that a problem? For generations, Los Angeles' perfect weather and booming economy has drawn in California dreamers. The county's population is larger than that of 40 states. But now America's second city is getting smaller, losing population and companies. As the Hollywood strikers revealed, the high costs of housing, living and running a business are pushing people away. Can LA reverse the big shrink? With me this week to discuss America's shrinking second city and what politicians there might do to reverse that trend are Idris Kaloun in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte Howard in New York. Idris, how are things in Washington? They are good. We picked up a car from my cousin. Uh, we drove it back from Kentucky this weekend. It is a used dad mobile. It gets 18 miles to the gallon on the highway, and it's very large. So I'm looking forward to conquering DC with my uh, Toyota 4Runner. Um, that is very on brand. And how was the drive from Kentucky? That sounds like a good road trip. Um, it was really nice, actually. Um, very spectacular uh, views. And uh, we have some family in Morgantown, West Virginia. So we stayed with them, which was very pleasant. And Charlotte, how are things with you? Any road trips? No road trips. I enjoyed the super blue moon last night. It was so cool. The moon was extraordinarily close to the earth. And so it was huge. It looked really huge and really bright. And the next time there'll be both a super moon and a blue moon won't be until 2037. So it was really neat. 
I'm kind of a dweeb for these things. And I would say that I'd point all people who are also moon geeks to our colleague Oliver Morton's book, The Moon. That is a really lovely book, available in all good bookstores and online. So this week, we're going to be talking about LA and our colleague Erin, who lots of listeners will know because she appears on the podcast quite frequently, was going to join us. But unfortunately, she's got COVID and she's lost her voice. So she can't be here. But she has been out doing lots of reporting about Los Angeles recently. And we're going to make use of some of that in this episode. Right now, a lot of the focus has been on the actors and writers strikes. But issues the city's facing go well beyond Hollywood. On the 100th day of the writer's strike last month, the picket line outside Warner Brothers felt a bit like a party. To work as an actor, LA is still a place to be, especially uh, because I do comedy and most like TV comedies shoot here. Um, there, there's just also such a great community here. Everybody sort of gets it. Like many people, um, Ali Kincaid came to LA to act. She's lived here for five years. Because ultimately we want people to be able to make a living in this profession and that's just fewer and fewer people are able to make a living than ever before. And we are in real wages making less money than we did in 2017. This is the first time actors and writers have been on strike since 1960, when Ronald Reagan was president of the Screen Actors Guild. Both groups are looking for protection from long-term threats like artificial intelligence, but also more immediate problems like low residuals from streaming services pushing down their incomes. I've had friends move home already. I had friends move home during COVID and I've had friends... Um, decide to quit now and it's just it's so sad and they're like I need to be able to feed my kids this isn't just about me like wanting a bunch of money and wanting a mansion this is about me being able to buy groceries for my kid and in LA I can't do that anymore you know the high profile Hollywood strikes are the most visible and audible challenge that LA faces but the city's problems go well beyond Tinseltown it's not just actors and writers who are worried about whether they can afford to stay in L.A. In 2020, California's population declined for the first time. Two-fifths of the state's population loss between April 2020 and January 2023 came from L.A. County. There are a few reasons for the exodus, says Shannon Sedgwick of the Los Angeles County Economics Development Corporation. We are seeing declining birth rates. We're seeing um, slowing immigration because of what's been happening the last few years that might turn around. But one reason stands out. You know, we have some challenges in terms of the cost of living, and so we're seeing some outflow um, that relates to that, especially as the pandemic has made hybrid and remote work more of a thing. So it's kind of allowed people to think about moving farther away from their jobs. L.A. exemplifies a lot of the struggles California faces more broadly. Wealthy Californians have been leaving the state in higher numbers since about 2017. That trend accelerated during the pandemic. But the biggest group of leavers is poorer Californians who've been priced out of the state. Only 15% of Angelinos can afford the median cost of a single-family home where they live, compared to 36% of Americans. Businesses are leaving too. A report from Stanford University's Hoover Institution, a conservative think tank, found that 350 firms moved their headquarters out of California between 2018 and 2021. Departures more than doubled in 2021. 
Cedric says this is all connected to affordability and regulation. Sometimes it's a little more difficult to do business here with some of the policy that's been put in place. And so businesses have to make the decision on whether they want to stay here and face those regulations that might be costly or if they want to move to other jurisdictions that might be trying to to attract them. For decades, California's officials believed that firms would continue to accept more taxes, higher energy costs, and onerous regulations in order to access the state's massive labor and consumer markets. But Los Angeles's grip on its big industries is slipping. Hollywood is one example. Roughly half of the jobs in America's motion picture industry are in California, with the vast majority of them in L.A. County. The film industry is Hollywood is Hollywood. It's been here for, you know, over 100 years. It's iconic, but it's also a key driver of our economy. So it typically represents over 10% of our gross county products. And that's direct. That's not including a lot of your indirect supply chain activity. And then, you know, induced activity, which is kind of those household spending of employees from the direct industry and, and the supply chain. So, you know, it's a significant driver here. But the city's slice of the pie has shrunk. New York, Georgia and British Columbia all offer more generous incentives for filming than California does. Outside of Hollywood, things look even worse. Projections from the state's Department of Finance suggest that there will be roughly as many Californians in 2060 as there were in 2020. But for LA County, those projections show the exodus could continue. The city could lose 1.7 million people, almost a fifth of its residents, in the next few decades. I feel that the city is at a crossroads. I wish I had a magic wand and in seven months I could have changed that, (laughs) but I haven't and can't. Karen Bass is the mayor of Los Angeles. She was sworn into office late last year. She's made housing and homelessness, the clearest manifestation of the city's unaffordability, her signature issues. I'm worried that the unaffordability is not just driving people out of Los Angeles, but it's putting people on the streets. 46,000 Angelinos literally living in RVs, cars, and tents. Uh, So, you know, yes, it is a major concern. She's streamlined permits for affordable housing, though not yet for all housing developments, and is clearing homeless camps, which was once taboo. Angelinos on picket lines are calling this LA's hot labor summer. Hotel workers and city employees have also gone on strike. Their grievances with their bosses are different, but all complain that they're struggling to live in Los Angeles. To me, the most critical issue that Los Angeles is facing is the fact that LA has become unaffordable for so many people that work here. And I believe that this summer of labor that we're seeing is absolutely emblematic of that. Charlotte, lest we be accused of singling out LA for its population loss, can you put what's happening in the city, what's been happening in some kind of context and compare it to what's happening in other American cities? Because LA is not the only big city in America that's been losing population recently. That's right. So you saw a lot of big cities, particularly on the coasts, lose population during COVID. So New York is one that lots of people highlight. But I would say that LA's had a particular problem, as had San Francisco. So Manhattan recently, according to census data that is admittedly now a year old, but the data from 2022 suggests that population in Manhattan has rebounded. 
NLA has a particular problem because its population was declining, LA County at least, was declining even before the pandemic. And broader Metro LA has seen a bit of a rebound, but not at all commensurate with what you saw in Manhattan as a counterexample. So New York's population has increased, whereas LA's population is declining not as quickly as it was in the depths of COVID, but still declining. And you contrast that with other really big metro areas, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, those have all seen growth. And Idris, it's a strange sort of population loss because as we heard with those people Aaron interviewed, the folks who work in the movie business in California, a lot of them are complaining about how expensive the city is and high housing costs. And you would ordinarily expect a city that's losing population that the housing costs would come down. So do you have a good understanding of what's going on there? Because it, it's a bit weird. Yeah, you're right that it's a bit weird. There are two kinds of population loss that a city can go through. One that is accompanied by rapidly falling property values like you saw in Detroit. And then you can have the kind of population loss that's precipitated by high housing prices. And that is the variant that Los Angeles has. It's something that's been more commonly associated with San Francisco as well, where I remember when I was reporting on homelessness in LA a few years ago, the statistics about the share of population that are rent burdened, meaning that they spend more than 30% of their income on rent, extremely rent burdened, some who spend more than 50% of their income on rent. And even, I mean, there are some examples of people who are spending 70 to 80% of their income on rent. So that has two effects. One, it, it increases the uh, population of homelessness, which is a, a, an issue that LA has long had to deal with. And then two, it also makes it harder for people to move into the city. I think there are also some specific industry changes. The fact that remote work has made you know, a lot of the high productivity sectors less place dependent is, is one factor going against LA. The fact that Georgia, which I just visited, has a robust industrial policy for movies that actually seems fairly effective in terms of attracting people over, as do the Canadians as well. So all of that has drawn some folks away from, from California and from LA specifically. Just to build on that, I would highlight that part of why this is fascinating in terms of LA's history is that California as a state, more than any other state, is associated with and the American dream that accompanies mobility. I mean, it's about all these people moving there optimistically for the beauty, for the potential wealth. And now you have this really weird situation on a state level, which is that the state saw a net decline in each of the past three years. And the state's finance department now thinks that on a broad level, the population will be more or less stagnant for the next four decades. And that's really striking given California's history. And you do hear politicians trying to respond. I was struck by a quote that I saw from Jerry Brown back when he was governor, when he said, where are you going to go when he was talking about the idea that Californians might move elsewhere? And the answer is a lot of places, Texas, uh, Atlanta, to Idris's point. And so it really is forcing a reckoning both on the state and city level. I remember going to interview Jerry Brown when he was governor of California and the interview went on for an hour and a half, and he mostly wanted to talk about Nietzsche. It was a, he was an interesting guy. Which you should know about because your mother wrote <laughs> a very good biography of Nietzsche. We're, we're getting all the book plugs in this episode. Which yes, is, thank you, Idris. Which is my really good. Did indeed write a great Nietzsche biography. So luckily, I'd done my homework on that one. Idris, population loss is the sort of thing that people who study demographic statistics will notice, but there's a much more 
visible sign of high housing costs in LA. And that's the very visible street homelessness. I think I read recently that every day there are 20 people added to the homeless population of Los Angeles. Yeah, if you visit LA, one of the first things you'll see is the high amount of unsheltered homelessness. And that has been going up over time. So the last point in time count, uh, basically, there's a coordinated effort where you know, officials go out and volunteers go out and count as many homeless people as they can in a given night. The 2023 results came out and they showed um, 76,000 people, which is 9% higher than the year before. So what's going on? And it's not just the case that LA doesn't spend enough on homelessness services. It spends quite a lot, but this just goes back to the housing discussion where, you know, it's pretty ironclad that increases in housing prices and decreases in rental affordability are what generate large numbers of of homeless populations. You know, people have this perception that because LA is an attractive place to to be, the weather is nice, that there's lots of movement of of people who are trekking across the country to kind of settle down in in LA. And the evidence for that has always been not there. Uh, If you interview people about where their last residence was, it's very often in the surrounding area. This is true about LA and, and San Francisco. So if the city doesn't fix or isn't able to address its housing problem, you know, and continues to spend uh, as much money as it does on homeless services, it's it's a bit like trying to fill, you know, a bathtub with a hole at the bottom. Unless you do one, you can't really begin to do the other. Yeah, the risk here is not that Los Angeles enters some Detroit-style spiral. It's that it really becomes a luxury good sort of city where people on low and medium incomes can't afford to live. And property there becomes a sort of like a Louis Vuitton handbag in some senses. And that would be a very different city to the LA that has thrived through the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st. Okay, we'll go back to talk about LA's Second World War and post-war boom in a few moments. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. It'll give you full access to all of our journalism. And it's because of our subscribers that we can do all of the reporting and writing and podcasting that we do here. So thank you to everyone who already subscribes. And thank you too, if you're thinking about taking a subscription. Charlotte and Idris, what have you both particularly enjoyed from our recent coverage? Since this episode is all about promoting the work of our nearest and dearest, Idris wrote a really interesting piece about artificial intelligence and the election, which I would point all of our listeners to. I would recommend the Money Talks that was done a few weeks ago, also in the interest of promoting people near and dear to me that featured Alice and Aaron, uh, who did a lot of the reporting they were relying on for this episode. And they talk in depth about the Hollywood strike and, and the economics of, of movie production uh, in a way that uh, I think we're not going to be able to get into in this episode. That is a really good one. And Idris's story, co-written with Arjun on AI and elections and what AI will and won't change in American politics next year and in other democracies next year, is really worth a read. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. Oh, I'm packing my grip and I'm leaving today because I'm taking a trip. California way. In 1944, in the midst of World War II, Bing Crosby dreamed of an idyllic, bucolic life 
in the San Fernando Valley. I've decided where yours truly really ought to be. And it's the San Fernando Valley for me. Before the war, LA was seen as a growing city, but a regional one, not a rival to those out east. The valley, which Bing dreamed of, was still mostly made up of farms and ranches. That changed with the war. The federal government poured money into the city, and it became a manufacturing hub. To find if America is girded up for battle, we can look at America's home front, a huge California factory where they're building Douglas dive bombers. The manufacturing economy of the state more than doubled, and personal incomes tripled. LA grew faster than any other city in the country. The county's population expanded by a third. The growth continued as war industries transitioned to peacetime work. Newsreels gushed about the success of the West. California is leaping ahead. The aircraft industry, which was necessarily vastly expanded during the war, is today maintaining a rate of production far in excess of anything dreamed of in pre-war days. The production of aircraft for military and civilian use is California's third largest industry. By the mid-1950s, L.A. County was home to more than 40% of the American aerospace industry. The city's most famous business flourished too, as Hollywood started to make things for smaller screens. And today, with television growing with incredible speed into a mass medium, California has been quick to prepare itself for the job of originating an imposing number of major television programs. People flocked to California. More than a million migrated to the state between 1945 and 1947. The Los Angeles Times wrote in the first few months of peace, the story of the West's great industrial future has spread over the nation, and, like the story of the discovery of gold, it is luring hopeful men whose dreams are spun of golden opportunity. Housing, already in short supply during the war, became a pinch point. The city started building, quickly. More than 20,000 building permits were issued in the first nine months of 1945, double the number in New York. Near Long Beach, a bean field was turned into tens of thousands of tract homes in just three years, making the city of Lakewood. By 1945, it had 60,000 residents. The San Fernando Valley ranches that Bing Crosby had dreamt of were transformed into the epitome of L.A. sprawl. And make the San Fernando Valley my home. So Idris, L.A. sees this huge boom during the Second World War, and that's one of the rejoinders to people who say, well, America can't do industrial policy. You know, look at Los Angeles. You get a lot of defense contracting moving out there during World War II, and then you have a huge population inflow, and then that carries on after the Second World War. And, you know, L.A. is one of the great boom cities of the second half of the 20th century. We did, our producer Stevie did note that it took The Economist until 1981 to pronounce LA as a city worth taking seriously. But I think maybe we're a little late on that. And perhaps more than anything else in terms of urbanism, LA is famous for its sprawl. 
Yeah, a, a lot of LA's rise depended on getting a few things right. And actually, LA has managed to grow in spite of getting a few things wrong. Mass transportation being one of them takes a very long time to get from one corner of the city to the other. But, you know, LA had to figure out a few things. It needed to build. It's gotten less good at building now. It needed to make sure they had enough water, which if you watch the movie Chinatown, you will learn all about. It's all about water. But I think that they have gotten less good at the other things that are necessary for the city to continue to grow. Uh, Aaron has a very good metaphor in her piece about uh, states running to decathlon and California being so far ahead that it forgets to train. And now you see Sunbelt cities like um, Austin, Texas, uh, Miami, where, you know, they're tempting businesses with uh, lower taxes, lower regulation, and uh, are successfully drawing many of them over. A very large number of businesses have left L.A. County um, over the last few years. On businesses, if you think about the ways in which it's a pain for businesses to thrive in California, on the one hand, you have access to lots of talent, but increasingly you have access to that talent elsewhere as well. And then California has this kind of bonkers system, which we've written about at length. Our colleague Alexandra Sewich-Bass has been prolific on this. But the ways in which California becomes quite hard to govern because of its system of voter propositions that result in all kinds of additional regulations. And then there are things that affect both companies and the broader housing market. So the time that it takes to get a building permit, for example, is very, very long. There was a stat in Hoover's report about a fast food chain and that it took longer to get a building permit in Los Angeles than it did in Russia, which I think is a pretty good contrast. And so you have slow permitting, you have an environment that's very litigious, where it's very easy for staff to sue their employers. All of these things together make California less attractive. And the work that other states are doing to lure firms from California has been pretty effective. It's especially concerning if California is losing businesses because of how the state actually raises revenue. It has an incredibly progressive tax system, which means that it relies a lot on its wealthiest members to fund uh, state programs. So the top 1% of earners in California account for 46% of all personal income tax revenue and 35% of the state's whole revenues. So that's that's quite a lot. That's why California tends to do well when equity markets are, are doing excellently, when people IPO, California gets a lot of money, when founders vest their shares and, and such. But that means that California is also exposed cyclically um, in a way that, that can be counterproductive for them. And in the history package, we point out how important state policy was to development of, of L.A., and although the state is spending a lot these days, there's, I think you could credibly make the argument that uh, it doesn't get nearly as much for its money as it once did. The attempted building of a uh, bullet train between uh, LA and San Francisco, this heralded project that was going to connect the two great cities of, of the state together, has cost tens of billions of dollars. I believe the estimate was that it was costing $1.8 million a day. It doesn't exist. It won't exist for at least an, another seven years, maybe longer. It is astonishing to me. I was just in San Francisco, but San Francisco, Palo Alto, and San Jose are probably the three most productive places on planet Earth. And they are right next to each other. And they are connected by a Caltrain that takes you an hour to get in between all of them. It's an incredible, incredible own goal. So anyway, that's a problem that California also needs to deal with. 
It is. And there's an LA-specific angle to that, which involves city governance. There are 88 separate cities within LA County. So the metro area that we talk about as if it's one thing is, in fact, 88 separate things in terms of governance. And it's incredibly hard to get all the permits in place to build stuff. I was struck, I was in Texas recently, and when you go to the outskirts of Dallas, when they want more housing, they just plow up what used to be a field and lay out these enormous suburban housing developments, which are very much the kind of housing developments that California went big on in the 1950s and 1960s. In California, there isn't that same abundance of land anymore. That kind of development is a one-off in a place that's more space-constrained. And so precisely because California and L.A. are such desirable places to live in the middle of the past century, people move there, more houses get built, it fills up, and then people do their utmost to protect their property and prevent other things from being built. And so that's, that's the problem we have now, which is all the more interesting given that California and LA are so left-leaning and have managed to construct a set of rules that make life so difficult for low-income Americans that, that they're leaving. I think California, to your point, is a classic case of competing priorities within the American left, right? I mean, supposedly people want more affordable housing, but they don't want it to be built near them. People want a big environmentally friendly infrastructure project, but then there are environmental groups that are worried about a specific species. I mean, if you follow the history of the state's renewables, you'll find all kinds of stuff on this, where each project required an enormous amount of time and lots of litigation. It's improved to some degree, but I think part of what makes California such a fascinating state and LA within it is because in some ways it's been a model when you think about states as laboratories for the country. California has very much been that, whether it comes to fuel economy standards, particularly environmental regulation writ large, to see what does and doesn't work. So as places that used to be enormous hubs of economic activity in a way that they took for granted, including my home city of New York, as they think more seriously about how to prepare for the 21st century, I think LA is a particularly interesting example to see whether they can test out things to reverse what for now seems to be a pretty intractable trend of, of, of long-term stagnation, population stagnation, whether they can implement some of these policies is a good test case for other big, formerly thriving places. Yes, those problems do seem pretty intractable at the moment. But to be fair to LA's mayor, Karen Bass, and also to California's governor, Gavin Newsom, they do talk about trying to improve the business environment and lower housing costs and make it easier to build stuff in LA and elsewhere in the state. It's just really hard to do in practice. And so to dig into why that is, we'll be back in a moment to look at some of the solutions that wonks are proposing to fix LA and get it growing again. Hans Johnson is a senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California, which is a think tank that's looking at what some of the solutions to Los Angeles problems might be. Right now, to meet the amount of housing the state says is needed by the end of this decade, LA would need to triple the number of houses it's building. I asked Hans about whether that's going to happen. So that's a very ambitious target, and it's one that we haven't seen, at least in the recent historic past. I think there's a real question out there about how many housing units California needs 
and Los Angeles City and County need to meet demand. What we know right now is that housing prices, either to own or rents, are far higher in California than they are in the rest of the country, and even higher in Los Angeles than they are statewide. And that clearly is a sign of housing stress and demand being very strong, even in the midst of what's happening right now, population decline. And so I think a lot of us who've looked at California and Los Angeles for many, many years are in unprecedented territory, our state's in unprecedented territory, and what that means for housing isn't quite clear yet, and to a large extent, it depends on how long this population loss occurs. It is a strange mixture, isn't it, this combination of population decline and rising house prices. So what explains it? Because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit how you'd expect a market to work normally. It doesn't fit how you would expect a market to work. And while I'm a demographer, I have studied economics, and so I'm troubled and somewhat confused by this, to be honest. What we've done here at the Public Policy Institute of California is try to unpack how this is actually occurring. And one of our observations is that the number of people per household is declining in California and in Los Angeles. And just as California and Los Angeles have led the way in terms of demographic change in the nation with rapid population growth in the past and uh, an increasing diversity of the population and now population decline, we're doing it our own way. And by that, I mean other places in the United States that have experienced population declines often have housing issues like too many vacant houses and um, difficulties demolishing even housing units that are vacant and have become a kind of nuisance. That is not California. That is not the LA story. Our story is fewer people living in more housing units. And that's what's happening right now. Right. So even though the population is declining, that doesn't mean that LA can, you know, take its foot off the gas in terms of building new houses. In terms of the constraint on house building in LA or apartment building in LA, can you help me to understand the politics of that? Because it seems, you know, you talk to the mayor's office, you know, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, you know, all of these folks talk about the importance of increasing supply and seem very keen on it and uh, say they're keen to get rid of regulations that make it harder to build more. And yet... You know, we have the situation we have. So is this something for state government to fix? Is it for city government, county government, or, or for even sort of smaller unit of government? Where's the block and what has to change? So the tension here is between what we might think of as the public good or the state interest and then the local good and the local interest. And in California, as in most states, Local zoning laws that pertain to where and how much housing can be built are largely determined at the local level. And by that, I mean cities and to some extent counties. The state doesn't have much authority or any authority over that. People in a neighborhood might not want new housing built or might not especially want multi-unit housing built. And the city that is responsive to their own electorate might agree with them. And so the state has instituted uh, quite a number of policies that in the past, I would say, were primarily goals and now have had legislative teeth added to them. So there's, there's some real carrots and sticks associated with building more housing units in California. And 
Californians, as you said, are famous for the love of sort of single family dwellings. It sometimes seems like politicians are determined to make cities like LA denser. But as far as you can tell, do Californians, do people in LA want to live in apartments? Or, you know, is the situation we have just frankly a reflection of the, the you know, the preference of buyers? So we do surveys of Californians' attitudes on, and opinions on a large number of things. And we have asked Californians if they would prefer to live in a single-family house, even if it means they have to be car-dependent, versus living in a more urban situation, but not in a single-family house, in a multi-unit building. And like it or not, about 70% of Californians say they prefer the single-family house with the car uh, requirement. So the idea that we can solve our housing crisis or at least partly solve it through infill development, uh, which is often multi-unit development, makes sense for California going forward. So then it does kind of run up against, though, this desire of many Californians. So I think the challenge then now is to provide multi-unit infill that is amenable to families. So that would be mean more three-bedroom units. It would mean maybe providing some sort of play structure, an outdoor space where, where children could run around. We have to think along those lines. So Charlotte, Hans Johnson there had several ideas about what might be done in LA. The city's mayor, Karen Bass, has got her own ideas, her own proposals. What do you make of those? I think they're generally sensible. She wants to, and she is, streamlining the permitting for affordable housing. But it would seem sensible to do that for all housing. I'm not really sure why you'd only target affordable housing. Clearly, we want developers, the city would want developers to create housing that is affordable for the people in the lower and lower middle income class who are leaving LA County in droves. But also, it seems like there is not a clear reason that permitting should be difficult for market rate housing. The other thing that that LA is in the middle of doing, which I think is really promising, is investing $120 billion in transport to improve the city's subway system. And unlike the high-speed rail project that Idris rightly criticized, this is something that really could have a big impact on the city's productivity, on, on lowering uh, transportation costs for individuals, just generally making it a more functional place to be. LA's traffic is probably the most famous in, in all of the United States. So I think that that's something to be applauded. Yeah. And, you know, this is a problem that San Francisco also confronts, and it's, it's common to, L- to LA as well, where you need market rate housing to come online in order to bring housing prices down. But in cities like this, you know, self-appointed progressive organizers will say that um, these new buildings are luxury developments, and therefore, they're not the right kind of de- development, and they need to be stopped. So, San Francisco, obviously, these cases are pathological and well-known. In Los Angeles, you see a, a similar thing. So there was a case just in 2022, the city council unveiled a plan to build a lot more. But they immediately got hit with a lawsuit from the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, which you know is a foundation set up to do exactly what it sounds like, but is also uh, incredibly interventionist in 
any decisions to upzone the city for, you know, ostensibly progressive reasons about fighting gentrification and whatnot, which ultimately ends up, I mean, making the, the city overall much more unaffordable than if this market rate housing were permitted to, to go forward. Other more ambitious ideas that would basically allow building near metro stations, which would have a big effect on LA and San Francisco, those proposals haven't really gone uh, where they need to go. So Charlotte, LA really does face a lot of problems. There are the housing ones we've talked about, homelessness, and also stress from climate change. I mean, Idris mentioned earlier it as a way to shoehorn in a reference to Chinatown, which is one of my favorite movies and one of his as well, that LA had sort of fixed the water problem. But it did fix the water problem, but it's not clear that the water problem will stay fixed. California has two really big problems that were related to climate change. One is water, and the other are the wildfires that periodically tear through the state and cover vast swaths of the state in, in either deadly flames or very dense smoke. And so you've seen in the past 10 years periods of really intense drought. In 2014, there was a really profound drought that affected the Central Valley and the enormous agricultural base there. You have ongoing questions about the state's ability to forecast and manage water properly. There was a report earlier this year from the state auditor that said that the Department of Water Resources really underestimated the impact of climate change on the state's water supply. That's one. And then the fires almost deserve no explanation. More than anywhere else in the United States, California really grapples with wildfires as a common occurrence year in, year out. And so that's something that also I think is a long-term question for residents. I have had a few people mention to me the idea of firebirds and the way you used to have snowbirds who would go from the north of the United States down to the south in the winter. Now you have people leave California firebirds in the summertime to escape the risk of fire. And that's a pretty profound behavioral shift. And I think it's one that will intensify for some of the people California wants to keep. Well, I think what happens in LA is going to be really interesting to watch for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's America's second biggest city by population. So what happens there by definition matters. It's also the case that so many Californians live there. What happens in LA affects the rest of the state in a big way. If LA can revive itself, make it more attractive to more Americans, then California may be able to reverse its population loss. And finally, something that Charlotte mentioned, it's just a window on so many interesting left-on-left fights in American politics. I always enjoy going and reporting in California precisely because you can see the fault lines that emerge when the political competition isn't Republican against Democrat. It's Democrat against Democrat. Okay, let's leave things there for now. But but before you go, I have a quiz for you. This week's quiz is themed around not just Hollywood, but politicians in Hollywood. Several actors have converted their box office fame into political office, but plenty of politicians have used their positions to get onto film sets also. Question one, which senator who retired Can, can I this interrupt year, you? I know the answer. <laughs> Wait, just let me get the question out and I promise you can answer first. Okay, which senator who retired earlier this year has had cameos in five Batman movies, including getting a speaking line in The Dark Knight where he warns Heath Ledger's Joker that he won't be intimidated by thugs? Idris. Patrick Leahy. 
It is indeed Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont, who's a self-confessed huge fan of Batman. That's very quick and very impressive. He donates all his fees and residuals from his Gotham appearances to the library in Montpellier, where he first took out the comics. So a point to Idris. Charlotte, I'm sorry, you didn't stand a chance. Yeah, no. Question two. The 2000 crime drama Traffic, directed by Steven Soderbergh, had cameos from a gaggle of politicians, including Senators Orrin Hatch, Harry Reid, Barbara Boxer, Chuck Grassley and Don Nichols. But why did Orrin Hatch come to have second thoughts about his role? He disagreed with Michael Douglas's speech on drug policy at the end. Was it anti-Mormon in some way? Both excellent guesses. The answer is more straightforward. Traffic, which I haven't seen, I do remember that at the time the reviews said there was a lot of gratuitous violence and profanity. And Hatch had been a critic of violence in movies. He initially agreed to be in the film because it had an anti-drug message. However, he later said that the violence was more than was necessary to reveal the devastation caused by drugs. I do not condone it. So there. Um, But if you want to see a movie with a lot of American senators in it, then Traffic is the one for you. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks also to Erin, and we wish her well. Our producer is Stevie Hertz. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We also have a checks and balance newsletter. You can sign up for that at economist.com slash newsletters. And you can get in touch with us via email if you want to do so. The address is podcasts at economist.com. We had some really lovely emails about the book club episode. So thank you very much for all of those. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. The world is unpredictable, but it's also understandable. Economist Education offers a six-week online course on international relations. Designed by The Economist editors and invited experts, it gives you the knowledge and insight to navigate the rapidly changing worlds of geopolitics, business, and technology. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code POLITICS. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash international relations.